Thank you, Azure, for that ministry and music. It's great to see so many returning faces this evening as we continue in our memorable or notable verses series, as Pastor Cruz had uh, let us know at the beginning of our time this evening. And the verse uh, to which we will be looking this evening is Psalm 1914, and you are welcome to turn there in your Bibles if you would like, or you can follow along as we will be making use of the screen above as well. So Psalm 1914 reads this way, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Charles Spurgeon, I think that's a pretty well-known preacher uh, in the 19th century, he was an English preacher, he once said this about this verse, about Psalm 19. He said, It is a sweet prayer and so spiritual that it is almost as commonly used in Christian worship as the apostolic benediction. As the apostolic benediction. And for some of us, we know that as 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. There's other uh, benedictions out there, but this is probably the most commonly used one. And it, is, and it says this, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So what Spurgeon concludes is that, is that verse 14 of Psalm 19 holds, at least in times past, a similar level of commonality in worship as this benediction that you see above, found in 2 Corinthians. So this verse carries a weight to it that I pray we will be able to examine clearly tonight. Now opening the umbrella a little bit wider, C.S. Lewis once said this about Psalm 19 as a whole, All right, the entirety of the psalm. This is what he says. He says, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter. And that's referring to all, 115, all, all 150 psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. I take this to be one of the greatest poems in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And still looking at the psalm as a whole, we have this guy named Arthur Weiser. He takes note to the eloquent metaphorical language and how, when coupled with the inside of the psalm, David is elevated to the status of a great poet who has stimulated the creative work of such eminent men as Goth, Hayden, and Beethoven. All right. So Psalm 19, as a whole, is held in high regard as a wonderful piece of biblical truth and eloquence. It's a beautiful psalm. It's, it's well written, and it is magnificently written with powerful imagery and flow. And perhaps when this eloquence is coupled with the message and theology of the written words we have what some consider to be a very memorable portion of God's Word. A very memorable portion of God's Word. So what better way to begin our evening or our sermon with the analysis of Psalm 19, verse 14, than to read the entirety of this notable psalm. So we're going to take the time now to read the entire psalm, Psalm, 1, psalm 19. And it begins this way, starting at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God makes himself known to mankind. That is the overlying consideration of David in this particular writing. God makes himself known. And this showing of himself, this God making himself known, is often referred to as revelation. And revelation is simply a term for God revealing himself or revealing knowledge of himself to mankind. So revelation is simply a term for God revealing himself or revealing knowledge of himself to mankind. And within this doctrine of revelation, there are two particularly understood forms by which God has chosen to reveal himself. So two forms in which God has chosen to reveal himself. And on the one side, we have general revelation. General revelation. So the universe, the nature around us, the existence of life is all a testament to the truth that there is a divine creator and sustainer to all things. The created world points to the one who governs with complete power and authority. God makes himself known in his created handiwork. That is general revelation. Right? The stars in the sky, the rotation of the earth, the intricate makeup of the human body, it all points to a majestic God whose power can be seen and known. General, general revelation. And then on the other hand, we have special revelation. Now, special revelation refers to the direct ways in which God has made himself known that cannot be seen in general revelation. So, the knowledge of God disclosed to us apart from the created universe. God has spoken to man directly by his prophets and through his written word. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is the incarnate revelation of God to man. So, God directly revealing himself through the supernatural is special revelation. So general revelation and special revelation. This psalm, Psalm 19, addresses both of these forms of revealing. Both general revelation and special revelation are reflected upon, and then in turn, they produce a prayerful response of the psalmist David. So with that in mind, here is our theme for this evening. Tonight we we get to answer the question, we will consider the question, what is an appropriate response to God's revelation? What is an appropriate response to God's revelation? And our key verse, like we had said, is Psalm 1914, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So in order to get a greater understanding of our memorable verse this evening, I think it is incredibly important to take the time to look at the verses that precede verse 14. Verse 14 falls at the very end, but I think it's very helpful 
to look at verses 1 through 13. And I fear that if we do not do that, if we do not take the time to carefully reflect on these verses, then we would lose some of the splendor that makes this particular verse so wonderful. So bear with me. We will get to the verse. We will get to this verse 14 in a second. But let's take a look at the psalm as a whole. So the psalm itself is divided into three separate sections. Verses 1 through 6 touch upon the majestic and glory of God revealed and communicated in the natural world. This is what we've referred to as earlier as general revelation. And then in verses 7 through 11, directly following that, these verses touch upon the written word of God and the extreme value that is placed upon this form of God's knowledge revealed to us. This is what we referred to earlier as special revelation. And then finally, in verses 12 through 14, we get the psalmist's reflection, a prayerful reflection in response to God's revelation to mankind. And what I hope we see tonight is David's mind and meditation that progresses from one section to another. So David starts large, right? He reflects upon the created world, the the majesty and splendor of God revealed in what is visually before him. That's where he starts. And what can be known about God in nature? And as David reflects and ponders about what can be seen about God in the world around him, David is then moved to appreciation for God's word. And as he meditates on the uniqueness and distinctiveness of God's word, he is then moved to a response. So I like to think of this psalm as a, a very large funnel. It's a progression of meditation. It's an example of what filling one's mind with the things of God looks like. It starts large, it starts with the things that can be seen, noticed in the world, in everyday life, and it moves eventually down the funnel to a humble response to the glory of God that is revealed to us. So let's start with the wide umbrella. Where does David's meditation begin? Well, David begins by reflecting upon God's revelation of of himself in the created universe. All right, and specifically, David considers God's revelation through the creation of the skies and the vastness of space. So we have Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. This is where we see that. It begins, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So the vastness of space and the skies above show that there is a majestic creator, and this revelation is not a mystery. It's not a riddle, it's not a puzzle that is incredibly difficult to put together. It's not like one of those clue games where you have to gather pieces of evidence in order to find out who the culprit is or the answer to the riddle that is put before us and therefore the answer is then brought to light once the puzzle pieces are fit together. It's not like that. It's not the idea that if you look hard enough, if you ponder long enough, then you will conclude that there must be a divine creation or a divine creator. See, it's not that at all. Rather, natural revelation is continually showing the splendor of our God. Look with me at the verbs that are used in verse 1. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, these verbs are in the participial form, which means that the verbs show continuity. So when translated, these verbs can literally be translated this way. 
the heavens, the heavens keep on declaring the glory of God, and the sky above keeps on proclaiming his handiwork. You see, it's not a mystery. God did not create and then step away and let us figure out how things came to be. No, but the skies above, the rotation of the sun, as seen in verses 4 through 6, it all shows that an orderly and working God has created what we can see around us. It is endless. God is continuously showing us himself through the natural world. Not only has God created, but he has created through his wisdom and order. Notice with me verse 2. Verse 2. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The use of the words day to day and night to night show the consistency of the natural order. The consistency of the natural order. You see, not only has God created the universe... But the cycle of day and night shows that God is wise. He is wise in his creation. The sun does not rise and set by accident. There is a divine and intelligent creator that transcends our understanding and our power to create. Furthermore, natural revelation is not bound or restricted by language. Verses 3 through 4. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Natural revelation goes beyond human forms of communication. communication. No matter what language you speak, no matter what part of the earth in which you may live, no matter what human limitations you may have, God's revelation through creation transcends all of that, and it is shown clearly God's creation is known to everyone. Whether you live in Asia, whether you live in America, the skies can be seen and the glory of God is revealed. It is a universal language that communicates to all. For that reason, we are without the excuse to fail to see God's glory. So my first point of application tonight is this. Don't miss the beauty of God revealing himself to us in natural ways. Don't take it for granted. God has revealed himself through the continual course of natural creation, the work of his hands. And this is a beautiful reality that we get to enjoy. So don't become numb to the beauty of the world around you. Look with me again at verse 2. It says, day to day pours out speech. And the verb for pours out here literally means to bubble up. To bubble up. It carries the imagery of a spring bubbling up. So much so that you cannot contain it, all right? It's irresistible, it's irrepressible. That's the picture here. So the glory and knowledge of God revealed in creation is like when you shake a soda bottle, all right, and you unscrew the cap, and then the bubbles start to fizz up and go everywhere, and then you try to put that cap back on, but you can try, but it's not going to work, all right? Good luck with that. It's, it's going to keep coming out. And it's the same idea with God's glory manifested in nature. You can try to ignore it, You can try to close your eyes to it, but you will do so in vain. Nature is right in front of you, and it will continue to manifest itself. Don't take it for granted. Don't miss opportunities to have prayerful reflection in giving God the glory that is due his name. You know, David, he he starts this great psalm with very simple simple means, with, with great simplicity. It's almost as if he is sitting outside amongst the creation and just taking it all in. And as he sits there and ponders, he is moved to see God in 
the creation before him. And what, what a mindset that is. What a simple reverence of noticing God and not taking creation and what it communicates for granted. So my first challenge, my first point of application is take moments to know God's power and character through natural revelation. Romans 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 says this. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, that being the unrighteous, that's the context here, uh, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So God's attributes can be seen through his creation. All right, verse 20 says his eternal power and divine nature. That's what can be seen in the created world. The world is bubbling up with his power and glory. So don't miss it. Don't miss it. Instead, I would challenge you to let it lead you to reflect upon and rejoice in the greater and clearer form of revelation that we see David meditate upon next. I would let it lead you to reflect upon and rejoice in the greater and clearer form of revelation that we see David meditate upon next. So as we continue with the discourse of the psalm, David has moved from reflecting upon God's revelation in the created universe to God's revealing of himself in his word. God making himself known through his word is what we discussed earlier as special revelation. And I also discussed how this is a funnel of thoughts for David. It starts large with David seeing God's glory in the world. And as he dwells on these thoughts and as he reflects, David's thoughts are narrowed to his appreciation for God's word, which is clearer and better form of revelation to us. It's a clearer and better revelation to us. Look with me at verses 7 through 11. It starts, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So the word of God is the attention of these five verses. Take a look with me at the value and esteem that David has towards God's law. In these verses, we see six terms for the word of God. First, we got the law of the Lord in verse 7, followed by the testimony of the Lord, also in verse 7. We have the precepts of the Lord, and we have the commandment of the Lord. Verse 9 says, the fear of the Lord... And then also following that, we have the rules of the Lord. Then these six references to God's word are followed by eight descriptions or characteristics of what, of what the word of God is. All right, What is the word of God? First one we have back in verse 7 is, the law of the Lord is perfect. That is followed by, the testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. Commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean, and then also enduring forever. Then we have the rules of the Lord are true, and also we have and righteous altogether. So then these eight characteristics are then followed by four benefits that the word of God has for its follower. 
All right, four benefits it has for its follower. First, in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And then the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And we could certainly take the time to break down each one of these verses within this section of the psalm, but I think it is important to continue looking at the bigger picture for a moment. So taking a step back, what can be seen in David's reflection upon the word of God? All right, What can be seen in David's reflection upon the word of God? And I believe the answer is God's word, the will of God revealed to mankind, is of great and beneficial value and therefore to be admired even more than God's revelation in nature. Look with me at verse 10. This is what he follows those couple verses with. He says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So we see that David holds the word of God to a higher value than general revelation. He thinks it more beneficial than what can be seen of God in the natural world. Alexander Kirkpatrick, he was a late 19th and early 20th century professor at Cambridge. I I believe he uh, taught Hebrew, and he wrote these words concerning verses 7 through 11. I do not have it up there. Verses 7 through 11 say that this is what he says. He says, and I quote, Yet more wonderful than this declaration of God's glory, this declaration of God's glory, that's referring to the first six verses, it says, more beneficent than the sun's life-giving light and heat is Jehovah's revelation of his will. All right, so more wonderful, more beneficial than the sun and what's seen in the natural world is Jehovah's revelation of his will. And why? Why is that more beneficial? Why does David hold the word of God to such a greater value? Why does he consider it more beneficial? Yes, because it revives the soul. Yes, because it brings forth wisdom. Yes, it makes the heart to rejoice and opens the eyes, as verse 7 through 9 says that we just looked at. But what does all of this point towards? What is this funnel pointing towards? What is the root that the law reveals? Let me read Alexander Kirkpatrick's quote again, but this time let me finish that final sentence. He says, Yet more wonderful than this declaration of God's glory More beneficent than the sun's life-giving light and heat is Jehovah's revelation of his will, which quickens and educates man's moral nature. Which quickens and educates man's moral nature. Why does man's moral nature need instruction? What is at the core of man's nature? What does the word of God reveal about the root of mankind? And the answer is that the precepts, the commands of God's word, reveals mankind's shortcomings. The law of God reveals sin. The law of God reveals man standing before an all-powerful and holy God. And because of this knowledge of sin and shortcomings, the word of God is of greater value. All right? Because of this knowledge of sin and shortcomings that the law reveals, the word of God then is held to a greater value and a greater appreciation. Consider with me David's response to all of this. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. He says, Who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults? Keep back your servant and awesome from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. 
God's word moves David to the revelation of mankind's shortcomings. He says in verse 12, who can discern his errors? This is a a rhetoric question. He is saying because God's law is so pure, because it's so right, because it's so perfect, since it requires holiness, who can recount all the times that he has stumbled or wandered away from it? All right, and the answer is no one. The law is so valuable because it reveals that apart from God's spirit over our lives, we break that law every single time. We cannot follow it to completion. Thus, David says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. He says, God, keep me from both hidden sins and sins that I commit inadvertently and sins that I do willfully, that I can take, that, that seem to take over and control my life. God, take that all away from me. God, may my life be wholly blameless as verse 13 notes, in your sight. May my life be wholly blameless in your sight. You see, through David's meditation of God's word, David is brought to a personal reflection of himself. As he reflects upon the large part of that funnel, upon God's creation, David recognizes God's glory and wisdom in the created order. And as he reflects upon the more intimate and better revelation of God's word, verses 7 through 11, he recognizes that he cannot measure up to the standard that this almighty, all-wise, all-powerful God requires and commands. And why can't David measure up to this perfect God? Because of human limitations and sinfulness. So at the end of this funnel, where does this leave David? Right? In his meditation, where does this leave him? And I submit to you, David is moved to a fear before his Redeemer and Creator that there may be sin holding him back from obedience and blamelessness. David seeks to be fully committed to God, and that is his prayer at the end of this psalm. David seeks to be fully committed and found in favor with God. So look with me at the verse that we're focusing upon this evening. Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The structure of this verse is actually very interesting. It mimics very closely to sacrificial language. Look with me at Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 for three and four, and just for context, this is God's laws for burnt offerings for the people of Israel. Verses three through four say this. If his offering, that being an Israelite man, is a, is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement, to make atonement for him. You see, a burnt offering was given by the people of Israel as an acknowledgement of sin And the symbol and purpose behind it was to restore and renew their relationship with God. An offering was given to atone for sin. It was to amend human shortcomings so that the favor and presence of God would remain with his people. And that's the imagery with this verse. David is saying, I know I cannot measure up. And his prayer is that the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart will be a favorable sacrifice, a favorable offering in the sight of God. He does not want the Spirit of God to depart from his life. More than anything, he wants to be in God's goodwill as a faithful servant. More than anything, he wants to be in God's goodwill as a faithful servant. 
But as we take a look at this verse a little, little more closely, what does David specifically mean by the words of his mouth and the meditation of his heart as an offering before God? Well, first, let's take a look at the words of my mouth. Right, the words of my mouth. What does this mean? Well, James chapter 3 talks about the dangers of the tongue. We know that the third commandment instructs us to refrain from cursing the name of God. We know Ephesians 4 speaks of the corruption that speech can cause. And that we can go on and on and look at the Proverbs and many other verses that address the mouth. However, what I want to focus on tonight is what Jesus says. What Jesus himself speaks multiple times on the relationship between the mouth and the heart. He speaks on it multiple times, but specifically, I want to look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 33 through 37. And this is what Jesus says. He says, either make the tree good and its, and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. For I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You see, the words of our mouth reveal the heart. The things we say, the way we talk with each other, the content of our conversations will be directed by what is most dear to us. What's in our heart? So when David prays to God, asking for his words to be acceptable to God, he is asking that what proceeds from the heart would reveal God as his greatest desire. So when David prays to God, asking for his words to be acceptable to God, he is asking that what proceeds from the heart would reveal God as his greatest desire. If the words of our mouth reveals our hearts, David wants his heart to be known as having a desire to honor and serve God wholeheartedly. He wants a blameless heart. That's what he's getting to. And he wants to be known as a faithful servant of his Lord. Secondly, we see that David prays that the meditation of the heart would also be pleasing to God. So the meditation of the heart. What is meditation? What is meditation? The word means musings, all right? It carries the picture of an animal chewing the cud. A, a cow will chew on the same food over and over again to get the most nutrients possible from a resource, all right? They'll bring it down into their stomach, bring it back up again. They will chew it over and over until the most nutrients are taken from that resource, whatever food that may be that they're eating. So to meditate means to contemplate. It means to muse over something over and over and over again. Uh, John Ball, he was an English Puritan. He explains meditation in what I think is a very helpful way, a very helpful way. And this is what he says about meditation. He says, To meditate signifies primarily to meditate, commune, or discourse with oneself, or which is the same to imagine, study, consider, or muse in mind or heart. Meditation is a serious, earnest, and purpose-musing on some point of Christian instruction, tending to lead us forward toward the kingdom of heaven and serving for our daily strengthening against the flesh, the world, and the devil. Or, it is the steadfast and earnest bending of the mind on some spiritual and heavenly matter, discoursing on it with ourselves until we bring it to some profitable point. Profitable point. 
both for the settling of our judgments and the bettering of our hearts and our lives. That's the end of the quote. So when David prays that the meditation of his heart will be favorable to God, he is asking that the continual thoughts and the musings of his heart will be filled with the things of God. And what does this look like? What, what, what is filling, filling your heart? What is the meditation on God's word? What, what does all of that look like? And well, I submit to you that we have an excellent example in the psalm before us this evening. Right? Here we have David, a man after God's own heart. He begins simply with his thoughts of the glory of God revealed in nature. All right? That's where the thoughts, that's where the meditation begins. It leads him down this trail of thought that brings him ever more in a dependence and a reverence for who God is. As John Ball said, meditation is discoursing on it with ourselves until we bring it to some profitable end. Until we bring it, that being the meditation, to some profitable end. So David meditated on the created world until he is brought to a profitable conclusion of who God is and a proper prayer of response to his shortcomings. To me, that is a profitable end. And that's why I believe Psalm 19 is a great example of what meditations of the heart should look like. David is saying, God, may I be fully sanctified in your sight, just as a sacrifice was to be without blemish, may my words and may my meditation be without blemish. May there be a pleasing, may it be a pleasing aroma unto you. May it be a pleasing aroma unto you. That is his prayer. And you know what a standard that is to which David holds himself. Mankind is sinful. How can he possibly be pure in the sight of God? All right? Mankind is sinful. How can he possibly be pure in the sight of God? And when you really think about that, how a sinful man can be pure in the sight of God, it's a hopeless endeavor on our own. It's a hopeless endeavor. The law reveals that we cannot measure up to God's standard. So how could we ever be blameless? It truly seems hopeless. But you see, it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless. Why, why is it not hopeless? Because we have God who sustains and saves us, right? It's not hopeless because we have God who sustains and saves us. Look with me at the end of verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I think it's, I think it's very easy to glance over this phrase. It, it seems kind of to be slapped on the end of this verse, on this end of prayer, it's, it's easy to glance over and just kind of throw to the wayside, but I submit to you that this phrase is what carries this prayer to fruition. This is what brings hope to such a seemingly un, insurmountable endeavor. This is where the hope is. This is how David is able to live up to that standard. It's because David knows that God is his rock and his redeemer. So we have these two titles given to God in this phrase. God as David's rock and God as David's redeemer. So first, we have the title of God as, God as his rock. And it may be silly to ask, but what is a rock, right? It's a hard surface. It's a, it's a solid ground. David, what he's saying when he's saying, oh, Lord, my rock, he's saying that God is his foundation, all right? David has established his foundation on God. David prays that his testimony, that his heart, will not waver, but remain grounded in the commands of the lawgiver. God is his strength, and God will carry the righteous desires of his heart to completion 
if David remains on the solid ground and trusts in God as his strength. Then second, we have the title of God as our Redeemer. This is perhaps a more confusing title for God that can seemingly be out of place. All right? It can really seem out of place here. However, what can be known about a Redeemer? What do we see the example of a Redeemer is or in, in, the, Bibles, in the Bible? So in the Old Testament, we see the example of a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer was a male relative who had the ability to save or rescue another relative who was in trouble or need. Right? A kinsman redeemer was a male relative who had the ability and responsibility to save or rescue another relative who was in trouble or was in need. And we have the example of Boaz in the book of Ruth. So Naomi and her daughter-in-law returned to Israel after famine. They returned poor and in need. And through a series of events, I believe we know the story well, Boaz, a relative of Naomi, buys the property of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and marries Ruth. Thus, the family continues. Naomi and Ruth are brought to financial restoration, and the name of the Lord is honored and praised. You see, a redeemer saves and restores. In the same way, the Lord is David's redeemer. God defends and God rescues David from both temptation and those who seek him ill will, who seek him harm. If David aspires to be blameless in the sight of God, David will need God's rescue and his help. And when the aspects of a redeemer is coupled with the truths of God as David's rock and strength, David can truly aspire to live a life that is pleasing to God. A life to which David is called a man after God's own heart. So what these two titles for God is acknowledging is the personal reflection that David cannot live to this standard on his own. David's dependence is completely on his Savior. Any other foundation, any other hope is of living blamelessly will ultimately fail. It is God David can rely upon to see him through the temptations and the sinful moral nature of David himself. Only God can answer this prayer for David's words and meditations to be acceptable in his, in his Lord. So God is David's hope. And I, I'd like to take this time now to just consider our response. What are the, the points of application? I just have two points of application for tonight. And the first one is this. Beware the danger of semantic satiation. Semantic satiation. I didn't know of this word until I looked it up, until I looked up what it means when something is so common it loses its meaning. All right, I, I looked up what it means when something is so common it loses its meaning, and sure enough, there is a term out there. And semantic satiation is when we hear something over and over and over again until it loses its meaning. In the beginning of our lesson this evening, I quoted Charles Spurgeon, who said that Psalm 19, verse 14 is a sweet prayer and so spiritual that it almost is as commonly used in Christian worship as the apostolic benediction. This verse that we see right, right here is, is a very common verse. I believe this verse and the psalm as a whole has many Christian themes that we know well. And I trust that this verse itself, this prayer, has at least some sort of familiarity with each one of us. When we hear it being said, it strikes some, some familiarity in our minds. We were like, yeah, I heard that at some point somewhere. But I would warn us to be cautious of familiarity becoming meaningless. 
In the beginning of our lesson, we looked at the meditations of David, his thoughts of God's revelation in the world and the word of God. You and I sitting here this evening have incredible access to both these forms of revelation. All right, we can look out the window and we can see God's wisdom and power. We can read his word freely and see the mind, will, and commands of scripture. But oftentimes, we take these for granted. Pray that God would renew an appreciation and reverence for his revelation to us. As we continued in our lesson, we looked at a very familiar verse, a familiar prayer that has been held in great esteem in the history of Christendom. But at what point does this prayer just roll off our tongues? How many times do we pray that we would be conformed more into the image of Christ, that we would be more godly, but never really act upon it? How many times do we sing that God is our rock and our redeemer, but never take to heart what it actually means? Don't let this verse, don't let all of the memorable verses that we're touching upon in this series lose their power. Don't let that happen. Now I would let the warning of semantic satiation expand to all aspects of our worship. Don't become numb to worship on a weekly basis. We follow a format and order in all of our sermons, in all of our services. And if I asked you now, you would probably be able to recite our general order of service for each Sunday. All right, it's in the bulletin each week. It follows the same format. But each part of our service has a purpose. It is a worship service designed to commit our hearts to praising our God. That order should not become numbing. We have gathered to praise and worship our God, and on a weekly basis, let it be our prayer that we will not simply walk through the motions, but have hearts ready to give God the praise and honor he deserves in each part of our worship service. So do not become numb to God's revelation. And then my second point of application is this. What is your prayer life like? What is your prayer life like? In the beginning, I said that this psalm is like a large funnel. Starting wide, David reflects upon creation, but as the funnel narrows, David is then moved to an appreciation for the greater revelation of God's word. And to what sort of response does this lead, lead David? It's a response of prayer. Specifically, a prayer for blameless living in light of dependence on God. You know, what a journey. What a thought process of David. Does the nature around us lead us to a similar prayer? Does God's word lead us to prayer? Does our sin problem lead us to prayer? Or perhaps what leads us to prayer is only when times of difficulty arise, when sickness grips our lives. Perhaps when we face the troubles of this world, then is the only time we turn to God. And certainly that is appropriate and it's commanded in Scripture. I don't want to dilute that in any way. But I would submit to you that the desires of the heart reflect what we pray before God. The desires of the heart reflect what we pray before God. Yes, we can pray for healing. Yes, we pray for strength and calamity, and that is good. Those are great desires to have. But how often do we pray for our own hearts? How often do we pray for a dependence on God to live lives that are blameless before him? In closing, Jesus says this. He says, he gives us an example of how to pray, and this is what he says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Then this is the last part. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. May our heart's prayer be for our lives to be blameless before our rock and our redeemer. May that be our prayer this evening. And may God be our hope as we seek to honor and we seek to glorify him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I I thank you for the way that you've revealed yourself, both in in your power and in your glory in the nature and in the, in the, the way you've revealed yourself in your word. I pray that this will lead us to contemplation. I pray that this will lead us to a prayer where we can, we can pray, let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, I pray that we will realize that we cannot live up to this standard without you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness we enjoy through him and the, and the, the status we, we, we have before you because of him. But I pray that it'll be on our hearts daily to seek to live, to, to live righteously, to live lives that are bring your name glory and bring your name honor. As we go throughout this week, I pray that we will keep this forefront in our minds and that we can ever seek to glorify your name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Just making a quick announcement at the, um, in a couple minutes, the, the quartet will be practicing up front. So just letting you know that uh, they'll be using the sanctuary here shortly. And at this point then, we're dismissed. Thank you. <laughs>